I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, let, me, let me just get a quick, you know, poll of the audience real quick. Anybody uh, know or belong to a dysfunctional family? Anybody? Okay, all right, no pointing fingers, slow down there in the back. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, yeah, like, if, you, if you've ever known a dysfunctional family, I've got some really good news for you by the end of today. The Bible is full of dysfunctional families, we're going to read about one. If you've ever been in a dysfunctional workplace where, like, the boss treated one person better than the others, then I've got really good news for you because that happened all throughout the Bible and God still used these people and it worked out. So, um, you know, just bear with me as we get all the way through it. If you measure your Thanksgiving, uh, a day success as no one was arrested this year, no one, you know, Uncle Stevie stayed out of jail, then, then I've got good news for you because the Bible is full of really messed up dysfunctional families. That's what we're going to read about in chapter 37. When I was um, about six or seven years old, so that puts me second or third grade, I had um, a lot of brothers and sisters. Um, my, my dad had remarried, so I had step-siblings. And my brother uh, and my stepbrother, who were both five years older than me, they got a new BB gun. Now, we all had BB guns. We lived in Warren, so like that's just the thing. Like you go and like shoot a rabbit or something, and so we all had like that pump up, you know, where you got like you got like twenty times and you catch a little cramp in your arm trying to shoot something. We had those. All of us had those. Second grade Jesse had one of those, but my brothers, they both got. I don't know if someone gave it to them or I don't know, like you know, they robbed a convenience store, but they uh, they ended up with the pistol uh, BB guns with the with the CO two cartridge in it. Now this thing is powerful, and I wanted it so bad, but Jesse's too young to have one. Now, now, to be fair, they're like, you know, eighth graders, so like, let's, let's just be honest. And so there's this moment where I'm begging them to let me play with their new BB gun, and they're like, no, go away, you're annoying me, Jesse. Like, any little brothers in here know how to do the annoying thing? That's me. Uh, I'm like, no, I want, I want to play. And so they're like, no, go away, don't. And so it's just like me and these two guys, and I'm begging to play with the BB gun, and they kind of trick me or something where I end up in another part of the house, and they run out into the yard, and I go chasing after them. And I go out there, and there's like whistling in the air, and there's crickets. There's no sign of them anywhere. Anywhere. I'm like, oh, where'd they go? You're right. And so, and now some of you are like, oh, this, this is going to end fine. Um, it didn't. And so I'm, I'm walking to, uh, we had like a barn. It was like a hundred yards away and I'm walking through and it's kind of like, uh, the good and the bad, the ugly music is playing. And, and I'm like, Where, where'd they go? And then I hear rustling in the grass and I turn and look and like this Rambo guy comes up out of the grass. He's like, ha ha ha. And then he laughs at the person behind me because they had surrounded me with their BB guns. And one of them shot me with the BB gun. And like, I just, to borrow Forrest Gump, it felt like something jumped up and bit me. It hit me like in the deep lower back in the high upper thigh in this area, and it hurt so bad, and I was so mad. And I'm like, come on, why did my brothers do that? Brothers are jerks. That's why they, they did that, right? Um, what we're going to read about is a guy named Joseph, and his brothers are jerks, um, a little bit worse than what I just said. And if you came from a family that was just, you know, messed up, or maybe you have a really good family and you just look around the world and you're like, why is the world kind of messed up the way that it is? We're going to look at that together and, and just trust that God has, um, has the ability to work out good things even when things don't make sense. Now, that illustration everything I thought of weeks ago, but, you know, it, it really drives the point home that we live in a world where we wake up yesterday and there was another shooting in Texas. And if you're like me, one, you're sick and tired of it, right? Uh, like, how is it that people can be so evil and so wicked? Like, what is going on with our world? Um, the truth is, is that we're going to find some answers to why these things happen. But at the end of the day, it's just... There's just some really evil things out there. We live in a world that it's broken and people hurt each other in very real ways. 
But it is possible and it is true that God, even through the brokenness, is not dismayed and all of his promises come to pass. And he really doesn't need you and I to have good circumstances for him to work out good things. He can do that despite our circumstances. So we're in the middle of this series. Uh, Pat's been teaching through Genesis. It's called Once Upon a Time. But let's, let's kind of recap some of the, the, the high points, if you will. Um, it, it, at the very beginning of Jesus, uh, Genesis, uh, you have uh, God. He creates all things, and they're all very good. But then humanity messed it all up. But you have this little but in Genesis 3 where God promises like a rescue plan. Okay, so it's all messed up, but God promises a rescue plan. And, and then after that, things start to spiral out of control pretty quickly. I mean, just, just to refresh your memory, um, there's the garden, there's Adam and Eve. They break all of creation. God says, this is bad. Don't do that. One generation later, a brother murders another brother. Like it, it just went bad quick. And it just spirals out and out of control. And so you can go back and read that or go listen to the podcast. Um, but, then, but then you have the flood. And what you see in the flood is that God kind of wipes the slate clean. And he saves just one family. And so if you're um, in the audience, if you are reading this for the first time, you might assume like, okay, well, the reason why everything went bad is because all the bad people still were around. And maybe, maybe if we just had a clean slate, maybe, maybe we would be able to figure it out. Well, Noah and his family would have been that option. And immediately it goes sideways again. And, and they mess things up. And so you, you see shortly after that, that all of humanity gets together and says, hey, let's build a monument and talk about how great we are. We're going to prove that we're greater than God. And that's the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel. And so God scatters them. Now, now we, we've got all the way to chapter 12-ish of Genesis, and God decides he's going to select a single family uh, to bless. And so he, he makes this covenant, or you might say even this rescue plan with Abraham, who then it gets passed on to Abraham's son, Isaac, who then it gets passed on to Isaac's son, Jacob. And each time in each generation, you see that each family member mishandles the promise that they were given. The promise was, if you will do this, I will be your God. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they almost did that, but then sometimes they fell apart, and still God comes through on the other end, that God still is faithful to his end of the promise despite the mishandling of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are, they're, just, they're just like me and you. Like we, we celebrate them. We hear about them you know, uh, in the Bible. They're, they're praised in the book of Hebrews of be, as being kind of the, the forerunners of the faith. But they had their flaws, right? I mean, like Abraham like, pretended to be like, not married to his wife. Oh, no, that's my sister, and really started messing things up. Isaac learned that same trick. And now you get to Jacob. Remember, Jacob, uh, he had a little bit of favoritism happening in his family. And uh, his mom made it so that they... They, him and his mom, tricked dad into giving the blessing to the wrong person. You know, that, that's a, and so Jacob, he spends a lot of his life running and hiding from his brother who's trying to hurt him. Now, we're going to read a story about Joseph, but it's important to remember what family Joseph belongs to. Joseph's dad is this same Jacob. And, and um, he ends up having his name changed to Israel. So sometimes you'll hear the name Jacob. Sometimes you'll hear the name Israel. It's the same guy. And you got to remember, like, if you're growing up and you're Joseph, like, imagine just sitting around the dinner table like, hey, Dad, tell me again about Uncle Esau, how he tried to, like, chase you through the, through the wilderness and, and try to murder you. Oh, that's a pretty cool story, Dad. How'd that work out? Tell me about Grandpa whenever he lied about his wife. Like, th they would have to share these stories and, and really kind of learn some of their, like, dysfunctions around the table. You ever hear something like about grandpa you didn't know existed? Like grandpa was in prison for how long? Like when, when did that happen? And then you find out like, oh, that explains, you know, uncle so-and-so's alcoholism. Like it just like things in families kind of get passed down when you don't address them all the way. 
One more thing just for laying the groundwork. I think that this is key, especially in these stories that we're going to be reading this week and and following with Joseph, is that it's important to remember who Genesis was written to, who the original audience was, and it really helps in understanding this. So my understanding of Genesis is that it was probably written by Moses, and since Moses died before he entered Israel, the time of writing would have had to have been while he's traveling around with the Israelites right after Egypt. So if if you know some of your, your, your Bible, you have the story of Exodus and all the Israelites leaving Egypt. Well, there's a 40-year window before Moses dies that he, he, he probably put this story together. They would, have, they would have shared these stories at this moment. And so why that's important is, is one, they're learning their history uh, about how they became the people that they are, how they came into Egypt, how, how uh, things went sideways for them in Egypt and they became slaves. But they're also learning about some place markers where really big events happened because they're moving back to the land that they came from. So whenever, whenever Moses takes his people all the way into uh, Israel and then uh, Joshua finishes the job and takes them in, when they come to a city, they remember, oh, oh, that's the city where Abraham did blah, 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 blah. Oh, that's, that's the mountain where Isaac was almost sacrificed. We ought to remember that place. Oh, that's, remember the crossroads where this happened and this happened? That's where that happened. They, they're going into a country and they see the place markers that Moses is, or uh, that the author is going to be listing right here in Genesis. Um, that's one of the reasons why Genesis is confusing when it names a place and then it names another name for the same place. We'll see that in a moment. It's like, they'll say this, and then in parentheses, it'll say also known as this. It's because when they get there, there's two different people groups there, and they call it different things. But we'll, we'll open in Genesis 37. Let's, let's see where we go. And so it says Jacob. Remember, Jacob also goes by another name, Israel. You'll hear that come up in a moment. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Uh, this land, by the way, Israel from the southern tip to the northern tip is about 300 miles from the southern to the, to the top. Canaan is about 300 miles long, north and south. That's about the distance from here to Dallas. It's not huge. It's not a huge country. So when they're talking about some of these place markers, you can think like, oh, that's about Lufkin to Huntsville. You know, like you can think of like distances in that way because it all fits. Like all of the Old Testament pretty much happens in this little 300 mile window until they go to Babylon. That's a Another thing. So Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old. So pause for a moment and put yourself in your 17-year-old mind. If you've, if you've been 17, just like, oh, yeah, that's when I thought I knew everything, but I didn't. Okay, uh, if you're not 17 yet, that's when you eventually learn everything. But uh, he's 17 years old, and he has a lot of older brothers. He has some younger brothers. And what we're going to find out is that for one reason or another, he was daddy's favorite son. He, Dad loved him, and all the brothers knew this. Like, if you have multiple siblings, one of you thinks so-and-so's the favorite, and your parents would be like, no, that's not true. The opposite happens right here. Everybody's like, hey, I bet Joseph's a favorite. Jacob's like, yeah, yeah, he pretty much is. Yeah, I love him more than I love you, and I'm going to give him more inheritance. Like, they were so, like, blunt about it. He says, uh, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He's out there doing what all of his brothers are doing. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. These are mom's names, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, uh, of them to their father. So uh, any, any parents in here just get really sick and tired of that, by the way? I, I mean, like I have, I have two sons. One of them is just learning to talk, so he can't do the tattletelling thing yet. But I mean, I'm just like, dude, 
just fix your own problems. I'm so tired of hearing what the other brother is doing all the time. And this is what Joseph is doing. He's 17 years old. He's out in the field with his brothers. They're doing whatever it is that you have to do to pastor a flock. And the brother, Joseph, is taking bad news back to dad and saying, hey, dad, you told them to pastor over there. They went pastoring over there. What are you going to do now? And if you're a good dad in this moment, you, you need to kind of put a stop to that at some point. But Jacob's like, oh, I got a little spy in the ranks. I'm going to use this. And so here's, here's what happens. Uh, in verse 3, it says, Now Israel, Jacob, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Now, uh, just pause for a second. That seems really weird to me and you because I'm looking across the room and I see like a swatch of colors. Like you, you are beautiful people, Carpenter's Way. I, I love it. There's, there's pastels. There's good fall colors. There's good summer colors. You're doing great. Um, in this day, you wore brown. And if you're really like feeling kind of, you know, like, hey, I want to spice it up, you wore browner brown. And, and you would go find a different brown and you wear that brown. Like everything you wore was just the most basic color ever. Unless you were going to a wedding or you were royalty and you wanted to show off how great you are. Because I don't know if you know this, look at your shirt, whatever color it is, look at that color and ask yourself, how did they make that color? You and I, we live in a world with like chemists and there's like a lab somewhere. It's like, I have the indigo 223. I have yellow 40. I have red 22, which everybody's allergic to. And, and you, you, you can make all these colors in your shirts. But in this day, you had to go like find a certain snail living in Southern Africa to get this one blue. And you had to go get a flower out of Europe to get this green. Like it was weird to get colors of any kind. You had to be really, really, really wealthy. And Jacob loved his son Joseph so much that he gave him a coat of many colors. He's living in this major trade area. And so I imagine he would just watch a trader come through. He's like, hey, man, I like that red you got there. What you want for that? And he'd give it like 40 shekels. I don't know what that is. And he, get, like, he buys that one. He gets this green. He gets this. And he gets his wife. He's like, I want you to make a coat with all these cool colors I made because we're rich and I bought this. Oh, great. You're going to make one for each of your sons? No, those guys wear brown. I don't like those kids. I want my boy Joseph to wear this coat. And so Jacob gives his favorite son, not the oldest, not the youngest, just a kid he chose, his favorite coat, the coat of many colors. This kid also happens to be a little spy in the ranks, and he's going and figuring out what the brothers are doing wrong, and he loves tattletelling it to dad because dad gives him praise for it, and, and it, it kind of works. One of the mysteries about dysfunction in families or in the workplace is that it, it's not always not working. I said that wrong. It, it sort of kind of almost works, dysfunction does. That's why it's there. That's why it stays in the family. That's why it stays in the workplace. That's why, that's why people can navigate like being the favorite because it sort of kind of almost works just enough that some people get a benefit and other people don't and that sort of thing. That's what's happening in this family. So he has this robe of many colors. And, and the funny thing about clothes then, um, this comes later. This may be too much information. It's just really funny is that like you and I, um, we, we have like our outer garments and our undergarments. They just had garment. Like they just had the one thing. So all this guy's wearing is a robe of many colors and all they're wearing is brown, just brown, brown, brown. And it says in uh, verse four, but when his brother saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. You have these brothers are sitting around the table, and every time Joseph opened his mouth, their brother, hey, stop talking. 
This is, you, this is grown up talk. You, you go over there and be dad's favorite. We're going to do our own thing. So you have like 11 brothers versus the one. But that's cool because dad loved the one more than all the others. And then it says in verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Hey, uh, hey, hey, Bubba, I, I had this dream. Oh, yeah, tell me about it. He says, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. So imagine like a bunch of wheat in the field. And you go and get as much wheat as you can together, and you tie like a rope around it, and then you lay it down in the field. That's a sheave. And so we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, check this out, my sheaf arose and stood upright. Anybody here ever eat like weird pizza late at night and you have a really weird dream? So this dude is dreaming about going to work with his brothers, and all of a sudden like the wheat gets up and starts walking around and talking to each other. Like that's, okay, like lay off the ambient or something. So behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves, the ones you made, they gathered around it and they bound down to my sheaf. Okay, so you have 12 sheaves in the field, and one of them stands up like, ha-ha, look at me. And all the other 11 come and bow down to it and like, oh, you're, you're the big sheaf on, on big, big sheaf, big sheaf, big, big sheaf in town. I'll work that out later for the second service. That's going to be amazing. Verse 8, it says, And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Because they, they got the, the imagery of this dream right away. Like, uh, they know it's a weird dream about sheaves, but they immediately understood, Are you? Are you telling us that you're going to be our king or something? Like you're going you're gonna to be our boss? <laughs> you got to be kidding me, Joseph. You might be dad's favorite right now, but he's going to die someday. And then you're on your own. Are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, um, Joseph, he's, he's going to have some amazing qualities that we're going to look at next week and the week after. He's kind of a doofus right here at 17 years old because he knows that his brothers hate him and he knows that he's daddy's favorite and he plays to it. He, he kind of, it's kind of like he knows right where that button is on his brothers and he presses it down. That's why he tells them the dream. That's why he tells them this next dream that's going to come up. He knows what he's doing, um, but he's kind of playing into it. And I just want to remind you that dysfunction sort of kind of almost works sometimes. Um, it just leads to some really bad consequences. All right, verse 9, he has another dream. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. The second time, like, Joseph, if I'm, if I'm like his youth pastor, I'm like, hey, just keep your dreams to yourself, buddy. Like, you don't have to tell them everything you dream about. Who cares? But he's going to tell his brothers anyway. And he said, behold, um, one of my translation techniques is anytime I read the word behold, I always think of somebody, hey, check this out. And so I hear that voice. I'm like, hey, check this out. I have dreamed another dream. And I bet his brothers all rolled their eyes. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, now in the other dream, it was just 11 sheep. But now you have 11 stars, but there's also a sun and a moon. More characters are being added. But when he told it to his father, um, when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. I'm going to pause for a second because things are about to go sideways for Joseph and just, just kind of point out a couple of things. <clears throat> One is um, Joseph kind of knew that he was pressing buttons. Two, Jacob had dysfunction in his family long before he was born. Long before. 
His mom chose favorites. That's how he ended up with the blessing. Now, if I understand God's sovereignty and how everything worked out, Jacob probably would have had the blessing anyway, but he got it through dysfunction in this case because they lied about who the oldest brother was. Uh, listen, listen to the podcast if you missed that one. But he knows dysfunction because he grew up in it. And now he's passing that same dysfunction on to his children. He never addresses the dysfunction. He never says, you know what? Favoritism really caused a lot of problems between me and my brother. Um, we should put a stop to that right now. No, no, he kept it going because it sort of kind of almost worked for him. Um, and he got to have news about what his flock was doing and what his other sons were doing. He played into it. He used it as a tool, but he did not address it. He did not try to fix it. And, and one of his sons pays the consequence for it here in just a moment. Uh, the other thing that's happening right here is that they know immediately what Joseph is getting at when he talks about his dreams. Nobody like tries to psychoanalyze this. They're like, you're saying that you're going to rule over us. And this is the only time that you find out that Jacob rebukes him. Dad rebukes his son. Isn't whenever his son is misbehaving or isn't when his son is playing into the dysfunction. The only time dad ever disciplines his son Joseph in this story is whenever Jacob himself doesn't like the news that he gets. And sometimes, just in terms of parenting or in terms of being a boss or in terms of you know, supervising other people, sometimes you need to address things even when they're working for you because you know that they're dysfunctional. Not whenever you finally hear the thing that you didn't like. That's like you're, you're two steps too late at that point. Um, it has to be addressed earlier, earlier on. So things are going bad. We're going to get back to Joey. I'm going to call him Joey because he's still, he's still making mistakes. Now his brothers went to pastor their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Jacob said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock in Shechem? Um, Shechem is north of Jerusalem a little bit. They're just south of Jerusalem. There's about a 50-mile stretch between where they are and where they're supposed to be pastoring the flock. Also interesting right here is that Joseph didn't go with his brothers. When we first find Joseph, we find him in the pasture with his brothers. So things have gone sideways so far to the point that his brothers don't even want to do the job with him. The 11 brothers go do the job, and they let the one brother stay at home with dad because, you know, he's the favorite. And so dad is walking through the house, I imagine, and he sees Joseph. He says, hey, aren't your brothers out pastoring the flock in Shechem? He's like, yeah, okay. He says, come, uh, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. I, lo I love that. Every time in the Old Testament, someone's like, here I am. Like, yeah, I was talking to you. Calm down. <laughs> like, I know, I know where you are. Uh, when, when someone in the Old Testament says, here I am, they're saying, I'll do whatever you want. No, I'm not hiding anything from you. You see that later on in Isaiah, whenever God says, who will go for me? Isaiah's been standing there the whole time. And Isaiah says, oh, here I am. Yeah, I'll do that. I'm not hiding from you. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And so Joseph is sitting there and he says, you know what? I think your brothers are out pastoring in Shechem. I, I think I'm going to send you to go do that. And Joseph's ears perk up. Oh, here I am. Yeah, I'll do that. Whatever you need, Dad. Uh, let me go get my coat. And so he says, um, in verse 14, So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. Now this is one of the most incriminating verses when it comes to Jacob, because he's playing into that dysfunction. He doesn't send Joseph to go help his older brothers and his younger brothers. He doesn't send him to go see if they need anything and maybe, maybe bring supplies. What does he send him for? He sends him to go, hey, why don't you go do that thing you like to do where you go and like tell me all the bad things? Why don't you go find them 50 miles away um, and see if they're doing anything wrong and come and bring me word about how things are going. Oh, here I am. I'll go. 
and gets his coat, and he goes. And so it says he sent him from the valley of Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem, uh, and he came to Shechem, about 50 miles north, so he went to Lufkin. Um, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what, what are you seeking? Well, like, he's just, here's this guy in a nice coat walking around the field, maybe by himself. Like, what, what are you looking for, man? And he says, tell me, please, where, uh, he says, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said to them, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now, you got to know one thing, that Joseph, if, if you've ever been in a family like this, Joseph just found out some bad news about his brothers. His brothers were supposed to be where? Shechem. He found out his brothers were not in Shechem. His brothers were 12 miles northwest of that in a little town called Dothan. And so his brother's like, <laughs> I didn't go tell my dad that, but let me go see what's going on there first. And so he's going to go to Dothan now. They're not where he's supposed to be. And now uh, it says in verse 18, they saw him from afar. His brothers like, are just sitting there. They're kind of doing their shepherdy things. Meh. And then you see like this, this like brightly colored guy on the horizon. Who walks around in Israel with a bright coat? Everybody's in brown. Oh, that's Joseph. That little snitch. Here he comes. Here he comes. He's coming to snitch on us. And it says, um, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now, I suspect that one of the reasons why they went sideways on him so quick isn't that they've been planning for months to kill him. I suspect that one of the reasons why they're ready to get rid of him is because they're not where they're supposed to be and they're tired of getting in trouble with dad. And they're like, okay, all right, we, we've got to put an end to this right now. That little guy going down because snitches, they get stitches. And now... That just came to me. I didn't write that in the notes. <laughs> they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. So now they got a nickname for him, the guy with all the dreams. Here comes this dreamer. Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. The first time I read this, I had this vision like in Dothan, there's like a bunch of potholes everywhere that the city hadn't come and filled in, and that's where all these pits are. That's not really how it works. It's a really desert town, um, and the way that you had water is that you had these big underground caverns called cisterns, and um, they were usually full of water. And so when they say pit right here, they're talking about these big underground holes. Like if you get thrown in a big underground hole full of water, you don't, you don't last, you know what I mean? Like you get a little waterlogged in the desert. And so uh, we're going to go throw him in this, in this cistern. And, uh, and it finishes that verse. It says, Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Like we're going to fix that one dream where everybody's bowing down to him. Uh, we're going to say an animal killed him. Verse 21, but when Reuben, one of the brothers, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, hey, 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 guys, let us not take his life. Let's not kill him. Let's not do that. Verse 22 says, and Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. He, he, he's like pointing at this one pit. We find out later that this one pit doesn't have water in it. So maybe that's part of Reuben's plan. Like he found an old dried up cistern, but he's like, hey, throw him in, throw him in this pit right here. Um, but do not lay a hand on him uh, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So the author gives us some insight into what Reuben's thinking. Okay, let's put him in this pit right here. Yeah, he'll die, sure. And then when everybody leaves, I'm going to come back and rescue my brother. That's, that's Reuben's big plan. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So 
the, the, here's, here's Joey, Joseph. He's walking in. He's on the horizon. He's kind of wringing his fingers. I got really bad news for dad. I'm going to figure out there's more bad news because I'm a snitch. And, and while they're walking up, the brothers decide, you know what? We're going to kill him. Let's get rid of this guy. He's a problem for us. He's kind of a jerk. Reuben, one of the boys of wisdom, says, listen, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this one pit without any water in it because he has a plan that he's going to come back later and rescue him. So Joseph walks in, and he's probably like, hey, guys, and, and they just attack him right there. They take his robe off of him. So now he's, he, he's running around naked, and they put him in the cistern in the pit without any water in it. Reuben's big plan is to kind of go through with the first part of it but come back later, maybe at night or the next day, and rescue his naked brother and get him back to dad so that everything is kosher, like I fixed it. We didn't kill the brother. He can continue doing what he's going to do. And then verse 25, after, uh, after everyone murders, uh, they just sit down and have a snack because that's what happens in verse 25. Then they sit down to eat. These brothers, they're so far gone like in their head that like they worked up an appetite in, in this beating of the brother. And they're like, let's go get a burger or something, guys. Let's Let's just kind of sit down and eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way, carrying it down uh, to Egypt. Because remember, it's a big trade route between the north and, and Egypt. Now, I can tell that nobody in here is an Israelite. Is that right? I can tell that because no one gasped when I said who was coming. It's the Ishmaelites. Now, if, if you were an Israelite, especially one who was in the wilderness uh, when Moses was probably reading this for the first time, you would have been like, Ishmaelites, like, they came back from like nowhere. The Ishmaelites go all the way back to Abraham, okay? So great-granddad, he had a promise from God, and he got tired of waiting for the promise of God to come to pass when, before Isaac was born. And so he had another child named Ishmael, and then God's like, okay, but... I promised you a different child, not for you to go make up your own promises. And so you have Isaac come out. We find out that God blesses Ishmael and his family, and he goes away. Now, if you're watching this in a movie, this is like watching an episode of X-Men, and you have like one of the mutants at the very beginning of the show, and then he doesn't come back until the third act, and you're like, oh! Oh, he's back. Like, he, there he is. Because you have Ishmaelites coming out of nowhere. Like, they've not been in the story almost anywhere through this whole thing, and they show back up because they're just sitting there eating their burger. No, just like brothers in the pit. Like, oh, what are we going to do with this guy? Ah, he'll probably die eventually. Oh, there's great granddads. It's like their great uncle family coming through, the Ishmaelites. They look up and they see the Ishmaelites who are trading all these things. And uh, in verse 26, it says, Then Judah, that's one of the brothers, uh, he said to his brothers, Hey, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Like, we could probably get some money for this, right? He says, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. Like, let's not be guilty of murder. Let's just sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's just, let's just sell this guy as a slave. Um, we have a tendency to kind of look back on this with like American eyes. And we think, oh, well, yeah, slave trading, that, that probably happened back then. One of the interesting things I found whenever I was reading this is that um, it was against the law to uh, sell uh, slaves in, in that time, not just for Israelites, not just for Abraham's family, but pretty much the entire Middle East says, yeah, this is against the law unless 
It's a prisoner of war or a child of a prisoner of war. Those are the only people you can trade as slaves. If you capture someone and sell them as a slave, you're guilty of kidnapping, and that's punishable by death in the entire region, not just Israelites. So like if Egypt found out about this, if the Canaanites found out about this, if anybody around there found out exactly what had happened, these 11 brothers are guilty of slave trading, kidnapping, and would be punishable by death. Like that's a kind of a big offense, right? So it's like you and your brother getting in a fight, and you're like, get in the closet, and you kick him in the closet, and you're sitting there, and you're like, what are we going to do? Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send him down to South America. Like, like the the jump from one end to another. You do something that is punishable by death as a response to this. It's, it, it really shows kind of where their where their mind is, how far gone they've gone. And it says, um, what profit is if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite trainers, traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up out of that pit. They lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, which is the going rate for a slave in that day. I looked it up. That's about $10 by our day. So they, they sold him for almost enough for like a Whataburger combo that they'd have to split between the 11 of them. Um, I lost my spot. And so uh, next verse, please. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. I'm going to pause there. Um, we, we are running low on time. We know that the plan was for Joseph to die. And we know that the promise of God was never meant to live in this kind of dysfunction. In fact, if we're not careful readers, it'd be very easy for us to think they're like, Yeah, sure, God promised all these things for this family, but man, they are messing up the promise. Don't you know you can't do that? Like, God would not honor that, except he does sort of work it out. He he does, because Joseph didn't die. He ends up being sold into slavery in Egypt, and when we come back next week, we're going to see, you know what? God is blessing Joseph in this really terrible, terrible circumstance that he found himself in. Could you imagine being left for dead by your own siblings, and then God's still like, hey, I'm not done with you yet. You're like, I'm in this pit naked by myself. What am I going to do? And God's like, I got, I got things for you. Don't worry about that. And, and he works it out. Here, here's what I want to do. Um, I'm going to end with some closing thoughts, just, just some challenges as we think through Joseph. Because like right here, if you are in Moses' first audience, it's all coming together for the first time. All of the stories get to this point. Like, how did we ever end up in Egypt? Well, let me tell you about Joseph. It didn't work out great for him, and all the circumstances look wrong, but God still blessed him, um, and this is how we ended up in Egypt. And the first thing I want to say is just kind of as an overall takeaway, really, of all of Genesis so far to this point, is, is this, that dysfunction in your family or dysfunction in your workplace sort of almost, kind of almost works, but you really don't want to play into it, because dysfunction leads to Dysfunction, yeah, things go sideways for a while. Dysfunction sort of kind of almost works because the people in charge get to play with the dysfunction or the people who want to be in charge or the people who want to be daddy's favorite or the boss's favorite, they get to play into that and use that to manipulate people or in whatever way that it's working, in whatever way that you see it. But don't, don't play into it. Instead, address it. And so the next thing is address the mess. What would have happened if Jacob would have drawn a line in the sand with his family early, early on and said, you know what? My grandfather grew up in dysfunction and I grew up in dysfunction. My brother tried to kill me. I'm going to make a better family for my family right now. Could God still accomplish his promises? Yeah. It would have been a shorter story for us to read. 
Genesis would have ended like 14 chapters earlier if, if like Jacob was like, no, we're not doing that. And it's like, and they moved to Egypt and God blessed them there. Like it would have been a, just a real easy transition. But because of the dysfunction, we read about all the weird little steps that had to come into play, but God still blesses them. If you are in a workplace, if you are a supervisor, if you are a parent, address whatever dysfunction you see and say, you know what, we're going to draw some lines in the sand. We're going, to, we're going to make a better situation for ourselves and for our future moving forward. We're not going to let this kind of measure who we are. The next thing is this, is that every story has a next chapter, and you really don't want to assume how this ends. Jacob, or excuse me, Joseph is naked in a pit right at the end of the story. It would have been really easy for him to be like, ah, God's done with me. He's going to bless one of my other brothers, but he's done with me, except so we find out that the promise makes its way all the way through Joseph, that this big rescue plan that God has promised way back in Genesis 3 traces its line straight through Jacob, who in this moment that we just read would have been so easy for him to give up. If you find yourself in a dysfunctional family, and it has been for a long time, or a dysfunctional workplace, and it has been for a long, long time, and you're like, there's nothing we can do about that. It's been here forever. It's been since great granddaddy went to prison. Like, we've all been dealing with this. Or it's been since, you know, so-and-so became the boss, and it's always been this way. You know, um, don't assume we know how this story is going to end. There is a next chapter. There is a way that's going to twist in a different turn. Um, Joseph's going to end up in prison later on. So it twists good, and then it twists bad again, and then it twists good again. But it twists. And that God is with you through each and every phase of that. If, you, if we don't know anything through Genesis, is that... Is that God really isn't kind of put off by our bad dealings or our bad circumstances. Like He can still work out his things. And so that's the, the fourth takeaway is that God, he doesn't rely on your circumstances to accomplish his promises. Your circumstances are important because they're your circumstances, but they're irrelevant to God accomplishing what he's going to accomplish. Here's what God is going to accomplish. He's going to redeem all of creation, all of it. Every last ounce of it is going to be redeemed. We can be a part of that, or we can sit back as bystanders. Our circumstances are irrelevant to that finally coming to be. But the invitation of the cross and the invitation of the rescue plan that God promises in Genesis 3, and we find in fruition in Jesus, is that we are invited to be a part of that, to where our circumstances no longer define us, and we become part of God's promises, and we live in hope today because there's a future hope that God's going to restore everything. Why is it that we live in a world where we wake up yesterday and there's another shooting in the news? It's because we're in a broken, dysfunctional world. We live in a Genesis 3 broken, fallen world. What are, what are we supposed to do with that information? Well, the information is, you know, we, we should be heartbroken. We should pray for these families, certainly. We should pray, one, that nobody ever has to deal with this again. But here we are now knowing that God can accomplish his promises despite our circumstances. If we look on the news and we see hopelessness, we see pointlessness, we're missing the point of really the entire Old Testament. The point is this, is that God is still good, and God is still sovereign. People will continue to do evil, wicked things, whether it be in your family or out in the world or in your workplace. There's still hope.